is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello and welcome to the Enter Sad Men podcast. Good to have you back again, episode 56, as we put together the ultimate list of hard rock, heavy metal, prog rock albums that you should own or have listened to. We're up to 160 odd now, uh, so another three for this episode. Uh, joined, as always, by Rich and Steve. Uh, how are you two bozos? Super and very excited. Steve, how are you doing? I'm very well, boys. Very well. It's good to be good to be in your company for uh, another ramble down Rock's memory lane. Looking forward to this. So you can uh, you've obviously found us on your uh, preferred podcast platform of choice. We're in all sorts of other places as well. We're on social media, and we've also got the website uh, entersadmen.co.uk where you can see the Hall of Fame in all its glory. You can have a look at some. Uh, lists of the top songs and albums from each uh, decade and you can read the accompanying blogs from the episodes as well which might give you a bit of a smile we hope anyway check us out wherever and whenever you can um good to have you along with us this evening um three albums the way we choose these is we have this make-believe tombola uh the tico toys tombola of topics and themes and he spits out a random topic or theme that we have to choose the albums against each episode and the reason we do that is otherwise we just end up choosing the albums that we love and we'd never get to the ones that we're not so sure about so anyway last time out tico spat out guns well weapons and ammunition that was the brief and we all went away and we've all come up with one so uh let's start with you richard tell everyone the album that you chose yeah whilst you say mark that tico does try and force us away from the usual we jump on any opportunity to include an album that we love. And uh, as soon as a weapon and ammunition and guns and all of that came up, I thought, ah, here we go. I can have a bit of Magnum. And uh, Magnum's finest album, in my personal opinion, which is On a Storyteller's Night. Steve, what did you pick? Yeah, ditto Richard. I just went for it. I didn't even give it any thought. As soon as this thing came up, I thought guns. And I said, and it ain't Guns and Roses. It's LA Guns and their debut album. Couldn't have been happier. And I didn't go for uh, the obvious kind of weapon that you fire. Um, I went for something a little more sinister and dirty. I went for a blade, specifically under the blade by Twisted Sister, because we haven't had any Twisted Sister. So, um, yeah, that's what we what I've gone for. So, yeah. Anyway, let's have a quick listen to the highlights of some of the tracks on all of these three albums so that everyone listening can uh, hear what we've had in our ears over the last week, and then we'll get on and review, rate, and rank them and put them into the Hall of Fame.
Okay, so 55 episodes in. This is episode 56 and three bands who we've not touched on before. Yeah, all big bands, all big bands, certainly. Certainly the first one, um, as big as they come, um, Twisted Sister and their debut album. Mark, talk us through Under the Blade. Opening album sleeve notes. Well, let me start by saying that this band has been around a lot longer than I ever thought it had been because I I just assumed in 1982 when they arrived um, with this album that that was kind of the, the first really the world had heard of them. But no. Twisted Sister had been around for 10 years, slogging the club circuit before this album was released on September the 18th, 1982. If you listen to or read some of the interviews that Dee Snyder's given and you you listen to some of the stuff that he's done, um, he is very quick to give some thanks and appreciation to the new wave of British heavy metal. And the reason for that is this is a, an, a band that couldn't get an album deal for love nor money. They had been playing virtually every club it was possible to play in New York State and beyond. Nothing was happening for them, nothing. So then the band, and particularly Dee Snyder, became aware of this kind of movement in the UK led by the likes of Iron Maiden, Def Leppard, etc., etc., the new wave of British heavy metal that we're all familiar with now. Twisted Sister, climb on a plane, come over here, and they signed a deal with an independent record label called Secret Records. They find a willing producer in the shape of Pete Way, um, the UFO bassist, which is an astonishing thing in itself because uh, having heard some of the stories about Pete Way from people who knew him, um, it's it's remarkable that he ever made it into the studio any day. So the fact that they got an album out of this is is beyond amazing. This is Under the Blade, recorded between July and August 1982 and recorded at the barn at Kitchenham Farm in Ashburnham, Surrey, by, as I say, Pete Way, but also helped by Mark the Animal Mendoza and Dee Snyder. It runs for 40 minutes. The follow-up would be You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, which essentially, I suppose, started the commercial ball rolling for them because they had those two monster singles off the back of that with I Am, I'm Me and The Kids Are Back. But um, this is the debut. The personnel, Dee Snyder on vocals, Eddie Fingers Ojeda or Ojeda, I can't, I don't know. So apologies if I've got that wrong. Lead and rhythm guitar. JJ French, also lead and rhythm guitar. Mark the Animal Mendoza on bass and the late AJ Perot on drums. It got to number 70 in the UK chart. Got to 125 uh, only as a 1985 re-release on Atlantic. The original didn't chart at all in America. And so far it has sold around 2 million copies. So it's done all right. Uh, I don't know how you two got on with this, but the the first word that kind of, because it's been a very, very long time since I've listened to this album, but the first word that popped into my head the moment I put this on was (laughs) post-punk. What about you? (laughs) Mm, Yeah, no, I get that. Absolutely get that. Coming over here was a masterstroke to do this because I think they fitted so neatly into the sound that we had over here, That's which couldn't what them being basically a post-punk kind of sound anyway. I mean, I know Snyder would have looked nothing like, sounded a lot like in places, the likes of Rob Halford, um, but didn't look like him, um, or Dickinson or Byford or, or Elliot or any of that lot. But um, but musically, I thought they've, they this fits in pretty snugly in that scene. It's kind of composite of so many bands, um, but with that one major... Well, a couple of major distinctive styles. This this kind of 
kind of New York gang thing was was fantastic theatre. It really was. And Snyder, of course, was the ultimate theatre, wasn't he? He was an extraordinarily theatrical figure, but often re- referred to as a sort of latter-day Alice Cooper, wasn't he? But they played Reading Festival this year. I think this was released just a couple of weeks after that. Now, I've no idea. I've seen footage of that, and the footage is fantastic. They get thrown so much shit at everyone's pelting them i'm really curious to know sunday afternoon slot after marillion and before wilco johnson twisted sister company it's like fucking chaos i mean it's just trying to get your head around that kind of you know triumvirate but i just wanted to know quite how big twisted because you said they've been around for the best part of a decade they've never been over here before until they came to do this i wonder how much pre-internet pre-youtube I just wonder how much the English public knew of Twisted Sister when they came over here. I'd love to know. I mean, there would have been sounds and well, NME and stuff like that, I know, but... Yeah, I, th- I think there was... I, I, to be honest, you probably talked to the wrong person because, for me, I'd heard of them. I knew they were kind of a big thing for the music press. I hadn't heard anything by them. And... But, yeah, th- there was... I think that I think it would probably be fair to say that by the time they played Reading that year, people... People knew who they were. Richard? Well, in answer to your question, this is another calling card, isn't it? I mean, of of a unique band. Yes, there's a ton of influences in there. Whoever you put them up in front of, whatever audience, at whatever time, even today, and you'd say, oh, yeah, here's Twisted Sister, people wouldn't believe what they were seeing. (laughs) Yeah, you can, we could talk about, you know, New York, Dolls and Kiss and I mean punk and whatever influences you 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 want to draw, but I remember the first time and I think the first time anybody sees D. Snyder, their jaws on the floor. You know they were so well rehearsed all of those years on the road. Um, you, you, you watch the YouTube video of that show they did in New York just before they came over to record it, and Jesus, I mean that that's the that's the tightest fucking band I've ever seen. I mean, hats off to to Pete Way in terms of him capturing that on 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 this album. It's Twisted Sister. They're they're unique, and the world is a richer place for them. <laughs> uh, has it has it frayed around the edges? I, I don't know. I, I think I disagree with you because it's it's them. I guess I, I think you're absolutely right. But I guess the, the the other thing, and I said this to you during the week, what Under the Blade proves to me is that. They are a live band first and a recorded band second, because you you don't get the the Twisted Sister live experience from the album, any of their albums. It's a great album. I've really enjoyed listening to it, but it's not as good as seeing them live. No, that's true. That's true. If you've seen them live, but I also remember the first time they were on top of the pops. <laughs> <laughs> BBC didn't know what no.
I mean, you talk you talk about a calling card. The album opens with "What you don't know." Open parenthesis. Sure can hurt you. Close parenthesis. And I think this was a standard staple opening song for virtually every show they played. And it's a brilliant, brilliant start. It's it's punky. Um, it's incredibly catchy. Um, just really tight. I mean, these are songs, obviously, that this band has played for years. So, you know, they're, they're absolutely on it from the very first note. And um, I don't think you could ever get more Twisted Sister than this. Yeah, it's no wonder they nearly always open with this, was it? I mean, it's the power chords, the sneer from Snyder. It then just explodes. And it's that attitude. And again, that's the other thing that they carried it through to all of their classics, isn't it? There's just, you know, we're the diamonds in this dust, this complete self-belief and fuck you. It's just great. It's just great. I would say this also hints at a commercial future they were going to seek as well. This track in particular of all the ones on the album, I think, you know, Trailblazers Force or We're Not Going to Take It or I Want to Rock, stuff like that. I think this one, certainly. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's just a classic opener. It's, you know, D. Snyder absolutely get the sort of Cooper comparisons here. Um, just this sort of flamboyant ringmaster orchestrating the whole thing, and it's just such a tight-knit noise behind it, you know. This band never sort of gets flabby at any stage throughout any of the nine tracks on it, does it? Incredibly tight. Um, great theatre, great theatre. But I hadn't realised until I started doing the research around this album that he's a he's a trained singer, isn't he? He's, he's a counter tenor. So is, this is not just some bloke who decided he wants to sing heavy metal. This is this is a classical singer bending his voice to a star. I just think it's astonishing, really. Anyway, if you really want to know what commercial route they were about to take, well, you get that in spades on track two, um, which is the bad boys. Oh, they like their brackets. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the bad boys brackets of rock and roll. This you could put on any Twisted Sister album that followed and it wouldn't have been out of place. I don't actually much like it. I think for the band that they are or were, this is a bit of a sellout um, in terms of style. So I'm not a huge fan of this. It's catchy. Uh, yeah. And it, it it's the hit on the album, is it? That's it, I think intended as the hit on the album. What, what I'm getting in this, and I, I don't know whether either Rich, you must be able to get this. I'm getting early Blink One Eight Two in this kind of Buddha dude ranch kind of here. <laughs> really yeah. am. Um, yeah. It's really post punky, um, but also irritatingly, and I wish I couldn't. And it's not the first time that I'll reference him this evening. I'm also getting a little bit of meatloaf. And it's leaving a bitter taste. <laughs> <laughs> this is theatrical rock. They're yeah. in. Yeah. They're in that. They're in that a that A four binder on our shelves that you don't <laughs> like to pick out, Steve. Aren't they? 
Um, <laughs> it is. I mean, it's, look, come on. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm I, for me, not as good as the opener, but again, it, it just lays that template out for everything that came along. Isn't it? I am. I'm me, and we're not going to take it. They didn't write this, in my personal opinion, for the commercial. They wrote this because the fans would just belt it out and sing along. Yeah, the, the, the songs that in, this inspired are better, but it's just, you know, it's got you know, the classic opening solo, you know, that, that melody that warms you up for what you're about to sing. Um, and lines like, how bad can a bad boy be if he sets you free? It's just brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes i'll i'll give you that i'll give you that um so bad boys rock and roll um and then there are no ballads on this album at all none not even the merest hint of a ballad the closest you get to it is possibly the most sinister and unsettling spoken intro sort of half-sung intro to track three, uh, which is called Run For Your Life. Uh, and it starts off very slow and very, as I say, very menacing, very brooding, and it takes off. And that is the last slow moment we get on the record. I like this track. I really like this track, subject matter notwithstanding. Yeah, it's interesting. The PMRC didn't pick up on this one, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we talked earlier about Snyder's training, vocal training. I mean, you, you can hear that on this intro. His the singing on this slower part before it explodes is is just superb. But yeah, but then he gets going, breaks in, and you're off. <laughs> yeah, Jada and um, and French are just brilliant on this. Absolutely brilliant. And they've been, the, the whole album is likened, isn't it, to, to, or the band is likened to Judas Priest. And it's got, yeah, there are a lot of similarities, one of which obviously is the twin guitar attack, isn't it? So, Steve. I, I like this a lot. I love that, that sort of, elect, just when you think they are going to tease you with something slow throughout, you get that, that brilliant little change up. They do it so slick, um, all very trademark, very simple, very punchy. It's, it's hard not to like it. There's really not a lot to this track. Which is not a criticism; it's merely an observation. Um, but it's but it's it's good. It's good. The comparisons to Judas Priest yeah. um, don't don't stop there, obviously, because track four is called "Sin After Sin," uh, and it, it sounds a bit like Judas Priest could have written it as well. And again, it's really well constructed. It's got great riff running through it. It's got a great chorus to it. And although I don't think that Twisted Sister templated their work, there is a formula to the album and they stick to it and I, I don't have a problem with that actually I think the album benefits for, from it but this is a really strong track four yeah there's a point I think he's going to break into breaking the law but other than that yeah it's- yeah for me I, this is a bit more straightforward I don't feel it's got the personality of the tracks before it um, or <laughs> obviously the one after it so it, it's alright for me this one it's alright so my question is, it's easy to lampoon Twisted Sister, and God knows the music press, some parts of it, made that almost a kind of part of their day job back in the early 80s. But I wonder, I just wonder, whether the whole look just detracted from the music. You can't imagine Twisted Sister without the makeup, without all of that. But as a piece of music, I think, I think they were underappreciated. I really do. 
You say that. You say you can't imagine Twisted Sister without the makeup. You'd have said the same about Kiss, don't forget. True. And they jettisoned it, didn't yeah. they, for a bit. So um and, and I don't know what the I don't know what the conclusion about Kiss at the time was, but I don't think it went down particularly favourably. And I think you'd find exactly the same reaction if Twisted Sister did anything different. King Diamond without the makeup is just a Danish singer. <laughs> and I use the word singer yes. advisedly. <laughs> yeah. One of Richard's favourites, as we all know. So the album closes out on Shoot 'em Down, um, which I have to say, full disclosure, is my favourite Twisted Sister track of all time, <laughs> bar none. So uh, this scores quite highly for me. I just, I think it's just got a delicious little riff on it. Um, the chorus, I've belted this out at concerts that uh, that I've seen them play at. It's got one of the kind of, I thought, coolest lyrics when I was young. I think <laughs> <Yeah>. it's <coming> <laughs> <out>. <laughs> um, Which I found is in, in all the lyric uh, websites that you go to, it's it's Master Beta, B-A-I-T-O-R, <laughs> B-A-I-T-E-R. So that, that, I don't know whether that's how it was. I don't know. I don't know. You've got the album there, Steve. They, they share the... The lyrics on the liner, um, but there's also shoot them down with a fucking gun. That's it. I'm sold. Don't tell me that bands like Poison and a million other glam rock bands weren't inspired by a track like this. It's, you can hear them all. You can hear them all in this. Well, I can hear them all scrambling for their notebooks. <laughs> yeah. now Steve's looking up the uh, lyrics. He is a ma- he is a master beta. B a i t e r. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I always thought. It was that. I thought because he's that that clever. Um, I mean, then he says, shoot him down with a fucking gun afterwards. I mean, what was (laughs) the point? (laughs) Um, Anyway, yeah, look, to this day, what a track. I mean, the energy, the groove, the attitude, the humour. I mean, apart from the riffs, it's just superb. And can I say, an absolutely proper old school solo. Yeah, yeah. If I was in a big rock band and I was about to come on stage, this would be the track I would play before I came on. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it would yeah. whip them up into a frenzy. Okay. So that's not a bad way to close uh, side one. In fact, we can argue about this sort of when we finish the list in about 100 years about whether this is one of the all-time great side closers. Um, but you flip the record over and you get... Well, a song called Destroyer, which uh, I suppose you could link back to Kiss, all sorts of parallels. I find the start of this track really, really unsettling. I don't know what that, it's like this, I don't know, mechanical breathing. It's just, it's just horrible in a, in a really good way. Um, and I, I, lo- I love the, the riff. It's, it's a bit, it's ploddy and Doomy and all of that stuff. And it's a really good way to start track, uh, side two. <laughs> I, I just find that breathing annoying. <laughs> Do you? I find it's like somebody on a ventilator or someone yeah. having an asthma attack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, it, for me, it's like, it's, it's, like, it's like somebody's in my room with a, with a breathing apparatus on, which I find really unsettling. You know, that's the image I get in my head when I listen to it. 
<laughs> Steve, Steve, is this unsettling or is it a slightly asthmatic old man? Well, I've, I've been through both. I've been through both. Um, it, it's, it's, there's a mean edge to it, isn't there? It, it, it is a mean edge, certainly. It does offer a meanness. Um, <laughs> it's Darth Vader running out of pocket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the problem is, the problem is the track's not great. I find it just a bit chuggy. I don't think there's anything wrong with this. Um, but the next track is a track that the PMRC picked up on. I, I, I don't know if you two have caught up uh, with Dee Snyder's appearance in front of the Senate hearing um, over the last week or so. He is an astonishing orator, isn't he? I mean, I know it was all written down, and but Phil Collin of Def Leppard said that essentially Dee Snyder st- sat in that hearing, a hearing that a lot of bands would not go to, and essentially defended the whole genre for them. And there's a huge amount of respect for him for that. Um, but Under the Blade was one um, that the PMRC picked up. I'm not sure it was on the Filthy 15, was it? No, it wasn't. But it, it's they say it's a you know about a violence, you know, it's a song about violence and, you know, killing people. Dee Snyder said it's about an, an operation that I think AJ Perot underwent a couple of years before. Um Make your own mind up. It's a great song. Yeah, I heard the reference was um, Eddie Ojeda underwent throat surgery. That's it. And it was something That's to it. do with Eddie that. Eddie Ojeda. Um, it's just an absolute – it's my song of the album, my track of the album all day long. I, I just think it's um, – I love that kind of Saxon gallop, but with some real sort of New York snarl. And, again, Snyder as the ultra, you know, showman, turning everything – turn anything into a piece of really sort of camped-up drama. Oh, it's just perfect. I'm not quite sure, listening to their lyrics, whether it was actually about surgery, given it talks about things like in the alleyway. <laughs> so, but anyway, um, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's a decent song. So the next uh, track, penultimate track, um, well, they arrive in England, and who do you get to play guitar on your album? Well, you get Fast Eddie Clark, uh, who does the second solo in Tear It Loose. This is about as kind of new wave of British heavy metal and motorhead rolled into one as you want to be, really. Um, I'm not surprised to find Eddie Clark on it. Uh, it would have been right up his alley. A bit too fast and breathless for me, personally. But there you go. Yeah, it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, it hasn't got the personality of some of the other songs. It kind of charges along. I've lost count of how many times they actually say, tear it loose. <laughs> so um, anyway, the album closes out track nine. Day of the Rocker, which, oh, I don't know. It's It goes out with a whimper for me rather than going out with a bang. This is kind of ride on. It's it's sort of, um, it's just one of those, I think it's Twisted Sister being too clever for their own good. But, yeah, it's slow. It's ploddy. It's repetitive, I find. And, yeah, if you'd swap the last two tracks around, I think that would have been a better out. Mm. But, it is what it is. Yeah, it's okay. Setting a tone for um, albums going out with a whimper in episode 56, because two of the three do. That's all I'm saying. There's so much good stuff to commend earlier on in the album that, um, it, it, to me, this is just the fun fizzled out after the title track. Richard? Yeah, it, it, it's very ACDC, isn't it, uh, as the finish? And, yeah, I agree with both of you. There's a, there's a bit of a fade at the end of the album. But, oh, crumbs. I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to this. Really have. Yeah. So, let's have some highs and lows. Uh, Steve, let's start with you. Okay, Day of the Rocker is the weak link for me. And 
I've marked them the same, shooting down under the blade, under the blade. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Richard? And day of the rocker as well for me as the low, and uh, not surprisingly, shoot them down. Shoot them fucking down. Yep, shoot them down with a fucking gun. That's what I say, uh, and I'm with you, uh, Day of the Rocker, and shoot them down um, are my lows and highs, or my low and my high. So there you go, uh, Twisted Sisters, debut appearance on the Enter Sandman podcast is their debut album from 1982. We will rank it later, um, but now it's time to move on to 1985. And, well, are they a rock band? Are they an AOR band? Are they a pomp rock band? <laughs> Who knows? Richard knows. It's Magnum on a storyteller's night. Opening album sleeve notes. They're a, a melodic rock band from Birmingham. I think you'll find. Uh, yeah, Magnum. Yes, their fifth studio album. And yeah, like Twisted Sister, my goodness, they were going a while before even their first album, let alone this one. So similarly, they were they were formed uh, in uh, the early 70s, in 1972, by Tony Clark and Bob Catley in Birmingham. And uh, after being a resident band in various pubs around Brum, they released their, their first album in 1978. But this, their fifth, really was their, their breakthrough, uh, released on the 13th of May 1985, recorded earlier that year. And it's another story, as we find so many on the podcast, of a band that was basically broke. I mean, they were dropped by their, their label, their previous label, Jet, because uh, their, their previous album uh, just, just didn't, uh, didn't do enough in, in, in terms of sales. Uh, that was the 11th hour, by the way. Uh, but they, uh, they managed to get a one-off album deal at FM uh, Records, uh, which was this. And um, and it really, really helped them uh, with a fantastic manager who pushed open every door, kicked open every door. Uh, they got a slot at Donington that year. They had a very successful tour. Uh, and uh, and this was sort of a starting point to uh, a more successful uh, period for them. Uh, it was recorded at Abattoir Studios. Uh, and uh, the personnel were, along with Bob Catley and Tony Clark in the founders, was Wally, Wally Lowe on bass guitar, Mark Stanway on keyboards, and uh, Jim Simpson on drums. Did pretty well chart-wise. Uh, it uh, reached uh, 24 in the UK, stayed on the chart for seven weeks. I don't think it did much in the US, and it did uh, did go gold. Uh, yet another album on this podcast, uh, which whose cover is uh, rendered by the wonderful artist... Rodney Matthews, uh, track-wise, 10-tracker, all written by Tony Clarkin. But, uh, it's got five tracks on side one, How Far Jerusalem, Just Like an Arrow, on a storyteller's night, Before First Light, and Les More Dorsons. Side two, and that's Endless Love, Two Hearts, Steal Your Heart, All England's Eyes, and The Last Dance.
you both know how much I love this album. How have you found it? Oh, I have to say, my heart didn't exactly sink when you chose Magnum, Richard, but it was it was it was close to a lead balloon moment. That's my bad, incidentally. That's no one else's. I was a simple soul in the nineteen eighties. And I guess my problem goes back to what Mark prefaced at the start, said, you know, what are Magnum? And that's exactly what I'm thinking with this. Because were they a prog band with an AOR outlook or an AOR band trying to be a bit rockier or a rock band who needed to be a bit proggy? I never really knew. And uh, my only real memory of Magnum up to this point was one album I had, which was Magnum 2, which was okay. And I probably should have been more alert to this album in as much as because I was at that Monsters of Rock with Mark in, in 1985. And I was spending my time doing homework into Rat and Bon Jovi and Metallica and just completely ignored um, Magnum, even though, even though I would have been aware that, you know, there were some big crits going along with Storytellers Night. So it should have been a really big moment, but, uh, you know, not quite up there with your first fuck, but it's the first band I'd ever seen live at a festival. So that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a major league deal. Um, but I just remember thinking on the day when they'd done their half hour, right, okay, who's next? Um, Magnum just weren't a band on my radar in 1985. So, as I say, my bad. Um, and now, having listened to this, I'm thinking, what have I missed out on? Because I think this is absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I love it to bits. If I have one minor criticism of it, and I think you kind of alluded to it, I think it, there's an urge towards sameness towards the back half. You know, maybe just gets a little bit too Vangelis for me. Um, but I love the songs, and there's no smoke and mirrors with this. If, if you're if you're ploughing this kind of musical furrow, those tunes have got to be spot on. The melodies have got to be spot on because there's no hiding place. Um, and luckily they are. But in, in answer to you know my own question about what sort of band they are, this is a pop band on this album with a light rock edge, and I love it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Well, uh, I'm guilty of the same thing. I, I'm Richard, you played me, I think, you must have played me the whole album, but the, the only tracks I remember were How Far Jerusalem and Just Like an Arrow, and I loved the first one, and I was indifferent towards the second one, and I had quite a lot of preconceptions about Magnum, uh, even having heard some of it, and like you, Steve, I was thinking, well, this could be a bit of a chore, and it's been anything but... The interesting thing is that in 1985, nobody cared about Magnum. Nobody was interested in them. I think it's amazing they got the opening slot at Donington because because they just weren't on anybody's radar. Um, you know, they they their time I think had been and gone. And although they Kerrang kept flogging them, um, I said to you this week, you know, I'd, I'd got to the point with Kerrang where if I saw Tony the fucking Hat Clarkin in another edition of the magazine i was going to put my foot through the telly and time on a british fashion so uh, i came to this and thought i know i like I, I know i'm not going to hate it but actually i've absolutely loved it if i'm absolutely honest you don't need to listen past track seven i think i could have quite happily done without steal the light and or steal your heart whatever it is and um uh all england's eyes and the last dance don't much care for any of them but the first seven tracks absolutely spot on i'm still slightly indifferent to just like an arrow even after many listens but the rest of it absolutely top draw yeah tony clarkin wrote most of these songs uh, when they were uh, on tour and the first of them is how far jerusalem starting with real atmospheric swirling starts keyboards 
Catley's voice comes in. Um, yeah, so this album really is heavy on the keyboards. And Mark Summer had discovered the MIDI interface, which would, where you could trigger multiple keyboards off of one of them. So uh, yeah, they uh, <laughs> they reaped that, didn't they? Um, <laughs> and I think this sets the scene for the album: quiet verses into a rockier chorus, back and forth. The producer Kit Wolven, he I mean he he was uh, the engineer for Tony Visconti uh, when Tony Visconti recorded Bowie's uh, big you know, be- best albums. So it's not surprising uh, in terms of the sound that he helped to uh, create. Uh, and the, the arrangements are, are, are so good on this. One of many songs on this album that makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what he said, but less of it. Um, that opening feels like you're at the sort of start of a concept album. I've seen nothing to suggest it is, but it does feel like it's kind of there's an atmospheric storyline coming in here somewhere. It's beautifully done. It is really, really beautifully done. Yeah, it's easy to say that this is some sort of, you know, frothy, Asia-like bit of prog, but there's a lot of beef in here as well, when they want to. And I think they've been a bit sparing with it occasionally, certainly later on in the album. But that's a super, super start. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is just great. Everything works on this. Here's a sentence you won't hear me say very often on this podcast. I love the drums. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know what they've done on the production, of the, but they are huge on this album, the drums, and it really makes it. Uh, I, I love the way the, the song sort of ebbs and flows and, you know, goes through quiet moments and then you've got that big kind of colossal, majestic chorus and riff going through it. Just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Let's move on to track two, which is just like an arrow. Again, yeah, the the big drums come out, come out again at the start of this, don't they? And... and um, and the bass, the, the, the bass is great in, in Just Like an Arrow. I think it's a perfect second track after the opener. Um, it changes the mood. It's more straight ahead. It is more commercial. It, it's lovely and upbeat. It always makes me happy. It fills me with energy. This song is just happy. Very, very 80s. What? The whole fucking album's very 80s. <laughs> it doesn't take long to date this, I tell you. <laughs> um the, the biggest problem with this track for me is if I want to listen to John Parr, I'll go and listen to John Parr. And, and for me, it's just completely derivative of what was happening in in that sort of pop rock space. It's John Parr. It's Rick Springfield. It's um, uh, Stevie Winwood. It's, it's a load of stuff from then. <laughs> and so for me, it's just a bit wallpapery. Arrow is followed uh, by the title track on A Storyteller's Night. A very similar structure, I think, to the to the opener with the quiet verses, the bigger choruses, some fantastic lyrics uh, from Clarkin, all about nightmares and fairy tales. I mean, I think particularly I mean, on a lot of the songs on the album, particularly this one, uh, Clarkin is the songwriter and guitarist. He really does write songs for the whole of the band. I, I think this is a really, really well balanced album. And uh, say as a guitarist, he's pretty understated, and uh, you know he doesn't dominate. But yeah, again, another fantastic atmospheric melodic magnum track. That's a lovely song. I do like it. Um, it's an, and it becomes catchy again. You know, perhaps catchier than the opener, but clearly not as catchy as the um, top ten single that went in between. I love Storytellers Night. I think it's um, it's it's great, but it's got all of the qualities 
from How Far Jerusalem that I really liked about How Far Jerusalem, which is the those kind of quieter moments in the song and then the build and the build and the build and then this very rocky chorus. So, yeah, great title track, brilliant song. Track four, Before First Light, we, we go back again to more straight ahead, a partner track almost is Just Like an Arrow, uh, yeah, pleasant melodic rock. Don't like it as much as Arrow, but I enjoy listening to it. Um, the problem I have with it is every time I'm listening to Before First Light, I'm waiting for the next track. You're wrong. Again, <laughs> you're wrong. This is brilliant. This is this is one of my favourite tracks on the album. It's got that I, I just I love the little motif that runs through it. Really catchy. I mean, it's cash, catchy, more infectious than Ebola. It's brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm with Richard in terms of I, I think I prefer um, Arrow, but sorry. What I do like about this is it's the first track where um, Clarkin finally really kind of frees up his fretboard with a decent mm-hmm. sound. And if I've got and if I've got one criticism, or I, I did have one criticism, which is it gets a little bit samey as it goes on. My other criticism, and it's me rather than them, because they were clearly never inclined that way. I think this is this is just a couple of screeching solos away. This album from being really good. I do love over-dramatic guitar work. Needs Eddie Ojeda. Yes. Let's move on to final track of side one, which is... You're not going to get all weepy. Oh. Us now, <laughs> oh, which is... Oh, <clears throat> my God. Les Mordor song. So, sort of pipe organ type keyboards start, I think, in my view, the a most wonderful, haunting, absolutely haunting song. And the best ever lyrics that Tony Clarkin's ever written. Just absolutely unbelievable. The story is about a shell-shocked soldier in World War I uh, who is facing a firing squad uh, because it was assumed he was refusing uh, to fight. If, if I can, can I just read a, f- a couple of uh, verses out here? I mean, you know, by the wall in silhouette standing through a flash of sudden light, cigarette from his mouth just hanging paper square to his heart pinned tight. Gather round reluctant marksmen, one of them to take his life. With a smile, he gives them pardon and leaves the dark and takes the light. I mean, there's some of the most most beautiful lyrics ever written in a song. Even just reading them out now, I'm I'm in goosebumps. Um, But on top of that, you have this song that just builds and builds and builds and builds uh, to this just huge crescendo at the end. Um, I think it's one of the finest songs ever written. Every now and again, you get a song that you just didn't see coming. This is perfection. Absolutely stunning. It's just what a track. You, it's just, just a track I want to listen to. And it's a 10 out of 10 track all day long. By the end of this episode, we'll have listened to 1,610 songs for this podcast. And this is the best of all of them so far. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you agree. This has moved me every time. Me too. Well, I'm afraid, as we must, uh, we flip the record over and we start side two uh, with Endless Love. Start with bass, drums. I mean, it's it's a solid rocker to start the side. Wally Lowe on bass, we haven't mentioned him. I think he, he provides a really solid uh, rhythm section. Uh, love his bass in this track. It's a good foot tapper. I like the keyboard twinkling in the verses a bit. And for anybody who's listening who 
can't imagine what the chorus melody is, um, think of Brave New World by Iron Maiden and you've just about got it. Yep. I haven't actually got to that, but yes, now that you mention it, you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, I mean, tough to follow yeah. the last song, really, isn't it? Without feeling a little bit underwhelmed. If this had been before Les Mans Dansons, I think you'd gone, this is a great track. It's not a chore listening to it. A side two opener? No, it's not a side two opener at all. It's just a little bit too, especially the way it goes off into that kind of, um, you know, ABC keyboard bit at the end. It's just a little bit too much of a pop song for me. Um, and it, and it, it was my low point of the album until the low point of the album, which is plain for all to see. <laughs> it goes, it does go a bit tango in the night, doesn't it? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Okay, let's move on to uh, track seven, which is uh, Two Hearts. As Steve said earlier, what, <laughs> what were Magnum? What were they? Well, here they are. Absolutely AOR, aren't they? <laughs> I really like Two Hearts. Um, it, it's a, a song you've got to move to, a song you can dance to. Uh, it's got a lovely chugging rhythm. Uh, I really like Clarkin's guitar uh, throughout this. Actually, this probably is a good template that, that they followed on subsequent albums. That um, This was then the kind of uh, theme that they mined. We're recording this episode on the hottest week of the year so far. So this has been played uh, driving around, windows down. The opening of the track, you don't hear this coming. No, you don't. Um, do you? It's, it, I mean, talk about infectious. Oh. This is just, just fucking brilliant. Really, really good song. And you can't help singing along to it. Um, and this makes me really, really, really happy. Absolutely spot. I love those little sort of staccato, dire straight shots on the guitar and that build into the chorus and that chorus. So, it's just such a great song. And especially after There's Endless just- Love. Endless Love was such a sort of limp thing, really. I just think this is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And it has some decent guitar work here, as Richard says as well. There are there are two tracks on this album. I, I like it when tracks end. I, I, I sometimes I think to fade a track is quite a lazy way of getting out of it. There are two tracks on this album that I think end when they should fade. And the first one is How Far Jerusalem, which I think has got a really weird ending. And this one, because this one should have gone on for about another, I don't know what, six months. It would be all right by me. Okay, so Two Hearts is uh, followed by Steal Your Heart. For me, I, <laughs> I, I I do love this track. It's one of those upbeat, happy, in love, oh my goodness kind of songs. I think Catley's voice it really carries this. Obviously, it's, you know, it's buoyed along by, by the keyboards and then it just breaks into this really nice little chuggy verse. Again, another really infectious chorus, hook line. Another one that makes me smile all the time. Come on, which band haven't we mentioned yet? It's Asia in it all day long, with a little bit of with Vangelis helping it along. I think it's brilliant. Love it. Um, absolutely nothing wrong with this. And at this stage, I'm thinking, you know, because side two is already shaped up very differently to side one. But with these two tracks in particular, Two Hearts and Steal Your Heart, in such a such a good way, such a summer album, isn't it? And it was a lovely sunny day as well, wasn't it, I think? And they played four tracks of Storyteller at Donington, and I don't fucking remember a yeah. thing about it. 
No, I think I was hunting for a packet of Marlboro. We would have somewhere. been. We would have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Needs must. This is all right. I, I, none of this. Well, one track on this album scored quite badly, but most of it has not scored badly at all. Most of it's you know very solid. This is a very solid song compared to you know the what seven that have gone or the six that have gone before seven that have gone before it. It's it's not quite there for me. Yeah, so the next is uh, All England's Eyes. Um, I mean, I suppose in a way, a bit of a companion song to Les Mordensor. So this is uh, another one about uh, England's fallen soldiers overseas. Uh, but it's a bit rockier, really driven by the drums. Yeah, it, it's again, it, this is classic Magnum. This is the only one that starts out like an, like an almost metal track. So that puts me in a good frame of mind straight away. And and they don't let me down. I think this is dynamite. I really do. I mean, it's obviously not metal, but it's um, closer to the sort of some of the gold-plated stuff on side one, I think, nice and atmospheric and the harmonies, darker tune. Love those big kind of adamantine drums. I, I think this is really excellent, and I just so wish they'd stop the album at the end of this. Uh, I said at the top of the show, uh, top of this section of the show, that um, you could have stopped at two hearts and... Actually, I, I really like this. So I was, I, I'd overlooked the fact that this is actually a really good song. So if you put it before Steal Your Heart, you could have stopped at All England's Eyes, as far as I'm concerned. But solid, absolutely solid. Got a really good score. So what's not to like? Quote, well, which is a question that I'm going to ask about the next one. I know. The answer to which is quite quite a lot. I know. It's funny, isn't it? So let's move on to the, the final track of the album, which is The Last Dance, A Complete Departure. All keyboard and piano and uh, Catley's vocals. Since I had this album, I- I've thought All England's Eyes should have been the closer for, just for the kind of song that it was you know, in terms of the mood, the bookend it would have provided. Yeah. So this has always felt like a bit of an afterthought for me. I mean, apparently they're very proud of it. Kit Wolven, Mark Stanway, um, they layered all the keyboards like an orchestra. They spent a ton of time uh, creating this track. And it's, I mean, it's nothing wrong with it. It's very pleasant, but it just feels so detached from uh, sorry, all the songs that preceded it. Two things, right? One is, one of the first words out of Steve's mouth is about to be meatloaf, <laughs> um, and and the second and the second thing is, where was the conversation during the band meeting <laughs> when they all sat down and the band turned to? Tony Clark and went, do you know what? We've got one ballad on here, um, which is actually really quite good. And Tony, we probably don't need a second one. Where was that conversation? Well, originally, this song was a lot rockier. So Clarkin wrote this <laughs> as a much more upbeat song. And then Kit Wolf and Mark Samway got hold of it and turned it into this. At which point, don't you say, well, that wasn't how it was meant to be, so let's not bother? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's interesting what you say, Richard, because you said it feels out of place. I hadn't even thought of that. To me, it was just bad. It is, isn't it? It's completely yeah. wrong for the album, mm. um, as well as being bad. You know, th- this needs calling out. It's, there should be no excuse for this. It's, it's such a misstep, mm. such an unfortunate misstep as well, because it will it will bring the album to yes. down. Yes. Yeah, I know. I know. It, well... I was about to say, without this on the album, I think this would have done very, very, very well. Yeah, I'm sure. So. And it won't now. Yeah. Not, not relatively speaking. 
So I, I think I hardly need ask this next question. Gentlemen, your highs and lows, please. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Richard, I'll do yours. You do Steve's, <laughs> and Steve, you do mine. Richard, your high is uh, Les More Dansons, and your low is Last Dance. How do you guess that? Am I right? Yeah, yeah, you're there right. There you are. <laughs> what do you think, Steve? Steve, is your high Les More Dansons and uh, your low uh, Last Dance? Not bad at all. Now then, Mark, I reckon your low was The Last Dance, and maybe, just maybe, your high was Les More Dansons. Fuck you, it's like, it's like being on a podcast with Mystic <laughs> Meg. But I still hope that um, uh, Storytellers Night will do reasonably well later. We will find out when it comes to the scores. But we'd better now move on to our final album, and it is the debut album by L.A. Guns, brought to us by Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. So, the self-titled debut album from L.A. Guns, a band who, yeah, kind of formed in California. Well, they were definitely formed in California, but kind of formed in 1983 or 1986. Depends how you look at it, because there's this kind of intertwined history um, with Guns N' Roses and L.A. Guns. So, um, as in Axl Rose was in the L.A. Guns and Tracy Guns was in Guns N' Roses. And anyway, eventually when everything settled down and a few sort of lineup changes later. Guns walked out of GNR and reformed LA Guns in 86. Anyway, bottom line is 18 months later, their debut album was released, hair metal was flourishing, and it sold pretty well. And the reason it sold pretty well is because it's fucking good. I mean it's a proper it's a proper piece of proper edgy glam rock metal. It's just a very, very decent album. There's a bit of the glam band about them, yes, and, and look meant a lot to these lads. Um, but this is basically a rock album, you know, a rock album with a sleazy edge, eyes on a commercial hit or two or three, bags of nastiness and energy. Uh, not sure the production does it any favours, but I'm sure Richard will talk us through that. Um, but they're generally kind of short, sharp, shock songs, several with a punky edge. There's a kind of dirtier kiss tucked away in here. There's some crew in here. There's some definite crew in this sound. There's a kind of raunchier Aerosmith. Um, all in all, it's, it's a brilliant album. Released uh, January the 4th, 1988, recorded in late 87 on the Vertigo label, 36 minutes long. Jim Ferracci was the producer, and they re- produced it in the Village Recorder in Santa Monica. Um, the personnel was, lead guitarist was Tracy Guns, who recruited Phil Lewis, an English vocalist, known previously for his work with Gunn and Bernie Torme. Um, Mick Cripps was the guitarist. Bass guitar, of whom we will talk much, is Kelly Nichols. And the drum credits go to a guy called Nicky Alexander. Well, they should have done because he wrote them all and was in the band, but he doesn't get he doesn't get a mention on the album. And it's Steve Riley's picture on the back. Such is the way of the world. Um, highest UK chart position was 73, reached 50 in the States. Sales info was gold. There are 11 tracks, if you like. There's 10, 10 tracks that count.
LA Guns, their first three albums, I think that's all you measure LA Guns by. So there's this one, Cocked and Loaded and Hollywood Vampires. I rate absolutely required listening. If you're unused to this kind of thing and you and you want to dip into this kind of mascarad world of MTV style, edgy glam rock, then those three albums are required listening. I think these boys were very, very good. Not just any old band off the Sunset Strip conveyor belt. I think they were much, much better than that. And I don't know whether you two agree with me on that. And certainly this album. I think this album's an absolute peach. Yeah, yeah. This has been a real, real grower. <laughs> I didn't know it. You know, I was assuming it was in yeah in, in that in that same bucket of those those mid late eighties LA sleazy rock uh, bands. But I mean, yeah, this, there's a there's a quality uh, about this more than your sort of your, your you know your Britney Foxes and your Faster Pussycats and all and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can certainly see the the GNR link, and I'm sure we'll talk about it some more. You know, what if? Uh, it's fascinating, isn't it? But as an album, I mean, it's a very, very tidy collection of little three-minute gems, isn't it? No song is longer than it needs to be. They just charge through them. There's a load of hooks. There's a load of this stuff that was uh, running around my head for hours and days after, often different ones on different days. It's been a really, really enjoyable listen. There's definitely some good old sing-alongs on this. Interesting you mentioned Faster Pussycat, because, of course, that's what they were going to call themselves until they realised there was a band called Faster Pussycat, which is why I always kind of compared the two. When I fell in love with one, I fell in love with the other. But I've always kind of had a softer spot for LA Guns than Faster Pussycat, but that's just me. Mark? Well, uh, I think I said to you I had um, the next album, Cocked and Loaded, at one point, and didn't much like it. So I had a kind of a similar moment when you announced this one, that you had when Richard announced Magnum. So I was thinking, God, this could be hard work. And to be honest, the first listen through, I was like, yeah, it's a bit meh, really. Um, And one by one, every track has suddenly clicked into place. And I've got to the point where I absolutely love it. I mean, it's not perfect, not by a long way, but there are enough glimpses of perfection on it to make it, A, very consistent, and B, you forgive the missteps. I mean, I, I listened back to Cops and Loaded thinking, well, what did I miss with that? I still don't like that particularly. Mm. Um, but this one, I love. I think it's great. Okay, so there's five tracks on each side. Well, there's a sixth track on side two, but as I say, it's, it's merely a kind of instrumental prelude to another another track. And side one kicks off with No Mercy. And there's, quite a, there's, there's a sort of real frantic pace of this album anyway, often on the very edge, but never out of control. But... This is this is certainly a nice frantic calling card. But what you get, and you certainly get it as the, as the album goes along, is the kind of musicality on this album, which which I think is what does help it help to elevate it above one of the mid albums of this type of that era. But yeah, no mercy. Pretty straight ahead. Punch the air. Sing along. Two minutes forty five long. Not very demanding. <laughs> Just a great tune. Well written. Enjoy. <laughs> um. When I when I first put this on, I was like, "Oh God, yeah, this is kind of what I remembered." LA Guns were a bit like a bit frantic, a bit kind of shouty, and a bit sort of gang vocals that don't quite work for me. And actually, of all of the tracks on the album, this is this is one that I I think is for me um, weaker than a lot of the rest of it. So for me, it's not a great opening, but the the album gets a lot better very quickly. 
No, I like this as an opener. Um, it's got a load of energy. It's Motorhead's Bomber is the riff. Da, 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 da. Um, I think for that reason, I quite like it. I quite like the drive. There's some really nice little breaks in a lot of these songs. And then on this, I like the way it drops back into that riff again after the chorus and all the little bits of uh, you know, the, the, the little breaks. And it's got a really, really good finish. It has. It absolutely has. Um, I prefer track two to track one, I must admit, which is sex action. Um, I think there's just such a deliciously naughty sleaziness to that, that guitar and that bass line throughout this. Silly noises at the end, but that's something for the teenagers. <laughs> well, after I was listening to this for a while, I suddenly realised why I like them is actually, and that this, this track illustrates it, they're closer to Hanoi Rocks than some of their counterparts uh, from from LA. And this song typifies it. I mean, that, that it's just this, it's really catchy, great melody. That really, it is a really sleazy, dirty riff, isn't it? It is right that this track fades out. I don't know what it is. It's like the... I, retiring into the bedroom i don't know there's just it, it, it adds to the whole mood of the song and it just slowly fades away uh, yeah good great 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 second track it is i think what i really really like about uh, la guns is um the fact that they just they come up with these brilliantly catchy riffs and unlike a lot of bands that would sort of like do riff it for a bit and then kind of do something else. And then yeah, maybe a bit of a chorus that's a bit different and then go back into the riff. This riff just carries on and it's not the only song where they do it. It's on the next one as well. And it's particularly on shoot for thrills where, you know, frankly, I was, I was as frothy as a frothy thing when that came on. Um, so yeah, love sex action and and this was you know one of the one of the early songs that i went okay i think i get la guns now. Mm. and we continue on the upward curve i think with one more reason which is track three and um, the best track yet great riff really nasty bass line from kelly nichols that sort of just traces its way throughout the track holding it all together from start to finish kicks up into a riff just a wall of seriously good noise they're just a dirty, dirty band, aren't they? Mm. and I love it. I I love the fact that this is this is so sleazy. The whole thing, yeah, you know, this track particularly, but the whole fucking album is just grubby in the most brilliant way. <laughs> yeah, this again, this is this has got Hanoi Rocks plasters all over it, and it, this is so catchy. And also, a, a special mention to Phil Lewis for a bloke who can't sing. He can't half sing. You know what I mean. Yeah, we've we've come across some bad singers who wreck albums. This this bloke's clearly a bad singer. Fucking perfect. It, it, it never loses it anywhere, um, which is brilliant. And we're still on the upward curve. Electric Gypsy, track four. Just when you think you've topped out, the final single off the album. And honestly, and here's my question for you boys. Honestly, I cannot believe, given the timing of this. So this is sandwiched between, in terms of release, chart release. This is sandwiched between. Now, I'm not saying anything. Sweet Child of Mine and Youth Gone Wild. Now, I'm not comparing the three at all. I'm absolutely not. But I'm just saying that they were on a decent label. They had the look, the sound, everything about it. Why not? Why could, with a bit of a push, why could this not have been a big hit? I just think it stinks of big hit. I really do. 
And I, and I don't know why it wasn't. Fantastic track. I don't know the answer. But you can, I mean, you can definitely hear the Guns N' Roses sound in this, can't you? Mm. No, I don't, I don't know either. Because is it because it was, um, because there, there is quite a punky feel mm-hmm. to this album, mm-hmm. you know, which is where the Hanoi Rocks stuff comes in. And I just wonder whether for your archetypal AMR guy, you know, in the late 80s, when we're into the hair metal and all the rest of it, I wonder if this just was a bit too old school for them you know it wasn't guns and roses kind of reinventing the wheel not that they did reinvent the wheel but that's not what history will tell you and skid row were just you know they were john bon jovi's lap dog weren't they really mm. so you know they made it because jbj you know greased some wheels for them um but yeah la guns deserved to to, to make it because this is just a stonkingly good album yeah and side one ends with nothing to lose. Something about that groove in something in uh, nothing to lose makes me think of Smash Alley by Faster Pussycat. I said earlier, Kelly Nichols, a fucking brilliant guitarist, uh, bass guitarist, and I love it when he when he brought forward out of the noise a little bit more because those two guitars <laughs> don't half make a racket. And he's rolling this track along. Um, the twin guitars are great, don't get me wrong, but Nichols Nichols on this song, superb. It's a bit of a blast, such a blast. Great pace, great tempo. Um, love that little drum and bass interlude, bringing in the saxes. And then you've got Lewis conducting that kind of playful outro. Yeah, you were talking about a great... I'm not, begin, not going to even begin to say it compares as a side one closer with what we heard earlier off Under the Blade. But it's a very well-worked-out outro, and it kind of does close side one quite nicely. It's Smash Alley with a bit of madness thrown in, isn't it? With the saxes and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really quite weird song in that sense. It borrows from so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a rollicking good finish. It's mm. uh, another really catchy, groovy riff. You talked earlier about the production, Steve. Uh, I actually think, I mean, on the vocals, guitars are good. I think the bass is really well captured. The thing that I think pulls it down are the drums. I think they're, obviously, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I actually think they're probably a little bit low in the mix and there's no, there's just not enough definition. And so, you know, like we talked about that last track, you know, say, versus Youth Gone Wild. I mean, the one thing that Skid Row had always was an amazing production. More attack from the drums would lift this. Turn it over and the bitch is back. It's all right, it's not a bad song. It's great beat to it, just not as good as anything that was on side one, really. Lewis making that same fatal mistake as Mike Monroe did once or twice of doing that edgy cockney thing. But I suppose, in credit, in fairness to him, he is actually an edgy cockney, so um, you can probably get away with it a little bit more than our Finnish friend. It's re- I was really I was looking at how Lewis got the gig and wondering why this Londoner wound up in in on the Sunset Strip. It's, it's it's really not a fascinating anecdote at all. He just knew someone who knew someone. <laughs> so I'll end the story there. <laughs> if you ever saw pictures of him on the one album he did before he left these shores, which was with Tormate, he was definitely a Californian trying to escape. There's no two ways about it. He slotted in seamlessly. But yeah, bitch is back. It's okay. I haven't really got a lot to add, to be honest. it's. Um, I think it's quite derivative. Yeah, it, it's... It's this album's Mr. Brownstone, isn't it? But not mm. quite as good. Yeah. 
No, not quite as good, no. They more than redeem themselves, because I like the next track, not so much Cry No More, which is this slightly pointless guitar and strings-led prelude into one-way ticket, which the obligatory slowy Lewis, rather like Davy Vane, say, um, is at his absolute best when he's draining himself of, um, of a bit of emotion. And a song like this shows him, as I've said, he can't sing, um, but a song like this shows him his absolute best, I think. Um, it's not a bad song. It's, it's a sort of lifter and a drifter. As I say, nothing we haven't heard before. Well, no, I, I say nothing we haven't heard before done by bands of this genre, but, you know, you think of shit that Poison put out and stuff like that when they go slow. Um, mm. There's a maturity here with this because it's quite a dark, slow ballad, slow song. It's not a ballad, is it? Um, it's no momentum halter. I think it's a really, really kind of clever piece of work. And I do think of Davy Vane whenever I listen to it because it's the sort of song that Vane would have done, I think. Yeah, I've got exactly that. It's it's a it's a slow song, but there's a there's a strength to it, and it don't mm. uh, at no point does it ever get slushy. No, uh, and yeah, it hold, it's got quite a backbone. Yeah, Mark, the beginning of it sounds like passage to Bangkok. <laughs> yeah, we've been through this. <laughs> does <laughs> does you listen to it? Sounds like Rush. It stops being like a passage to Bangkok <laughs> quite quickly. Um, <laughs> uh, I really like One Way Ticket. I really do. I, I think it, it's very easy, isn't it, to to up the cheese factor in songs like this, and they don't. No. Yeah, they, they keep it dialed back. And like you say, Steve, it's heartfelt, and it's it, there's quite a lot of emotion in it, and therefore it works. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's a strong song. But they've got to come out of it. And what a great way to come out of it um, with a power-packed little gem by the name of Hollywood Tees, which isn't one of theirs. Um, it was actually written by Lewis and Phil Cullum um, for Girl back in 1979. It was, on the, it was the opening track on their opening album. And having listened to that, it's a very, very faithful cover um, of that song. They haven't done an awful lot with it. Um, but then, you know, why would they? Lewis sang it then and he's singing it here. I like it. It's a, it's a, it's a good tempo. It's a good riff. It's not a patch on what's just gone, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's not a bad song. Unfortunately, I'm waiting for what comes next now. <laughs> um, and it, I, I like this. I think, I think it's great. I think it's quite stri- straight ahead. Mm. Um, I don't think there's a lot of ambition in it, um, which is, is not a bad thing. It's, it's not a criticism. But, yeah, I know what's coming, and I'm, like, hurrying this along in my head. <laughs> I think the opening riff is fantastic on this song. Uh, I don't know what all the mucking around is at the beginning. Because <laughs> um, if they, I think this song would have had so much more impact if they just cracked off you know, with that, with the riff that's about 30 seconds in. I really like this. I really, really like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the breaks. I think the bass line is superb. I love the little ooh in the vocals uh, on, the, on those bridges. Uh, I prefer it to the next song. Okay. Yeah. Well, for the second for the second time this this episode, you're wrong. Um, so go on then, Mark. Shoot for thrills. Also a cover, I think, isn't it? Isn't it not? Uh, well, yeah, it was done, think... done by a band called Sweet Pain, which I think Nichols was in. Yeah. Um, and this is a very, 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 very different version. This is not a faithful cover at all. Okay. And this is much, much better. Okay. Because um, I've listened to the Sweet Pain version. Um, this has got everything that sex action and one more reason have got only 
bigger and with lots of punky oils in it. And I absolutely love it. The riff in this is fucking monstrous. It's never affected me in quite that way, I have to say. <laughs> Richard? It is absolutely steaming hot. Okay. Wow. The bass and guitars are so tight in this. I, I really like that. At times I thought it was a bit cult-ish. It's a good song. It is. And we bow out with uh, Down in the City, which is just an absolutely great, fun finish. More thunderous bass work from, uh, from Nichols. What a catchy song. It's just signing off with a party, isn't it? I mean, it's seriously end of peer in places. And I think we've got a washboard in it. Holds <laughs> up somewhere. It's not an incredible piece of work by any stretch of the imagination, but it's um and you are pining for the first four tracks on side one right now, but it's still it's, it seems like a fitting way to bow out. It doesn't flow as well as the rest of the yeah. songs. Some of those tempo changes. I, I, I really yeah. when it began, it, it it could have been another Hanoi rock song. And then it goes into almost this, I don't know. It's like uh, a, a hard rock skiffle version of Walk This Way by Aerosmith. <laughs> it's quite a confused cocktail, isn't it? But it, as I say, it's a mm. de- decent bit of fun. Um, so highs and lows, what do we think, Richard? So Down the City is mine. Just it, um, I mean, not, not low, low, but just doesn't work as well as the others. And my high is... One more reason. Okay. Mark? Nothing to lose is my low. Uh, it's a, not a very low scoring low, but it's a low. Um, and one more reason was very close. But no, shoot for thrills. Shoot for thrills. I have to change my underwear every time I listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Priceless. Yeah, down in the city for me. And Electric Gypsy is my high. And there you have it. LA Guns debut album wraps up episode 56 of the Enter Sad Men podcast. We now have to go away and score these track by track, and we'll come back, work out the averages, and find out where these three albums slide in to our Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so the scores are in for this episode 56 of the Enter Sad Men podcast. Records on a theme of weapons and ammunition and we started off with twisted sisters 1982 debut uh, under the blade which um did all right actually uh, in the end um steve you gave it a 7.16 uh rich you gave it a 7.1 effectively uh i gave it a 7.4 for an overall average album score of 7.2 and all the threes um we fast forwarded by uh three years to 85 and magnums on a storyteller's night uh richard how did that get on yeah yeah it did it did well it did well uh steve gave it a 7.8 now, Mark, you uh, liked it most uh, with a 8.36, and I gave it an 8 dead. And that gave it an overall of 8.05. Uh, so, Steve, uh, the last album of uh, the episode, L.A. Guns, how did they do? Mm. Well, I was under the impression when I chose L.A. Guns' debut album that I would be the one who'd like it most, but in, that couldn't be further from the truth. And I like it. Um, I gave it a score of 7.4. Richard, you gave it a score of 7.55. And Happy Bunny Mark gave it a score of 8.09. He loved it. 
um, for an overall album score of 7.68, which I think is very impressive for a piece of late 80s glam. So there you go. Those are the three albums scored. Now all we need to do is find out where they are in the Hall of Fame. It's time to put The Rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Yes, welcome to our Hall of Fame. And where did they get to, these three from tonight? Well, uh, from the bottom up, Twisted Sister, despite a very you know, reasonable score of 7.23, uh, find themselves in position 116. Uh, we have to climb a fair bit higher uh, to find LA Guns, who've nearly broken into the top 50. They find themselves at number 56. Our top scoring album of this episode on a storyteller's night by Magnum uh, is a very good position at number 26. Uh, they're just above Crest of a Nave by Jethro Tull and just below Out of the Cellar by Rat. I couldn't help be drawn to the fact that LA Guns are also two places higher than Van Halen. <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. Has it come to this? I mean, how good is how good was the 80s <laughs> when you got the LA Guns? You got Tracy Guns, two places higher than Eddie Van Halen. I don't know. These these albums are what they are, aren't they? And they 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 live or die by their weakest moments in the end and 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 also by consistency. And I think the one thing that came through in the discussion we had about all three albums is that Twisted Sister's debut was just a bit patchier than the other two. It was always going to struggle. But as I said, you know, when we did the scores, we've still got You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, Stay Hungry mm. to come. Mm. So, And those are better albums. We know they are. So uh, I'm sure they will do better as we move forward. Very good. So there you go. That's been, um, that was episode 56, quite a special night on the grounds that for the third time we have unanimity in the fact that we've all scored, um, we've scored a 10 out of 10 across the board. That's only the third time it's happened. Veteran of the Psychic Wars by Blue Oyster Cult. Enter Sandman. (laughs) The wrong man. Enter Sandman. (laughs) Enter Sandman by Metallica. And now this one, Le More Dans Stomp by by Magnum. So that's pretty special. Um, a good way to uh, to end episode 56. Um, if you want to know more about what we're up to, check out the website, www.entersadmen.co.uk. Um, you can see the list and other lists in all their glory. We'll be back in the not-too-distant future for episode 57, three more albums, and we look forward to your company. Until then, all the best. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.